San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. In this episode, you'll hear Claire Sheridan in conversation with San Francisco Ballet Orchestra member Marilyn Coyne. This episode was recorded on Friday, May 22nd, 2020, before the online premiere of Christopher Wielden's Bound 2. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist interview. My name is Claire Sheridan, and I'm here with the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra member, Marilyn Coyne. Hi, Marilyn. Hi, how are you doing today, Claire? Now, folks, if you want to uh, know what it's like to play in a ballet orchestra, Marilyn is the source. (laughs) She has played the oboe and English horn for San Francisco Ballet for 43 years. And because she lives on both coasts, she uh, has played for companies in New York including American Ballet Theater for 20 years. Now, normally, Marilyn, I'd be interviewing you in front of the stage at the War Memorial Opera House um, before ballet performance, but due to COVID-19, the Opera House had to close on March 7th, and so here we are on Zoom doing a virtual interview. Uh, Folks, please forgive any technical issues or noise that might uh, interfere a little bit. Um, Marilyn, where are you now? I'm in uh, Leonia, New Jersey, which is a small town that is right by the George Washington Bridge in Bergen County. There are a lot of musicians that live here because it's a sort of a suburban setting with lots of trees and forests, and it's, but it's five minutes from the George Washington Bridge. You would sort of never know it was here. Well, how are you coping with this whole shelter-in-place uh, situation? Um... I'm doing pretty well. I think once in a while I get the blues pretty bad. Uh, It's usually on Wednesdays. I don't know why, but usually Wednesdays are when I get the blues. So um, I just try to think about one day at a time. And that's all I can really get back to. And then I'm okay. Today I gardened this morning and I'm trying to do things that are sort of what I normally do this time of year when I return from San Francisco. And um, I'm doing lots of social media and conferences, Zoom conferences with my colleagues and with the company and uh, family, of course. I have family in the Bay Area. So I'm Zooming with them every weekend, every other weekend. So it's been almost more communication than normal with staying home. I don't, I don't know why we're all doing this, but that's what we're doing. <laughs> well, uh, you've been with the company for 43 years, and why do you like working there? You know, what makes San Francisco Ballet Orchestra different from others? I think there's something that is uh, very community-oriented about our orchestra. Not only are many of the players from California, but... Um, there's some kind of a camaraderie in our group that doesn't really, I don't find exists in most other groups. And I was just talking to Rufus Olivier, our principal bassoonist about that the other day on the phone. And it's kind of unexplainable. I don't know why, Um, but it always is a creative endeavor. It always feels like the performances, even 40 years ago, uh, you know, there was always something about it that felt important. Hmm. And still does. Well, um, by the way, folks, if you have a question, please feel free to uh, put it in the comment section on Facebook and I'll pass on the question to Marilyn. 
You mentioned uh, in our earlier conversation that you felt that it, uh, the San Francisco Ballet was like a family that you felt included so that the dancers were not so separate. You know, you, you just weren't the hired gang in the pit, but you felt a part of the family. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, when I first joined the company, um, we, that was in uh, 1977, we went on tour uh, in 78 um, by bus. And the dancers and the musicians were on the buses. And at first, of course, it would just, the musicians were on one bus and the dancers were on another. But then by the time the end of the tour would happen, everybody was socializing. And, and we all knew who everybody was that was on stage. And it was very important to everybody in the pit to know who was dancing. And so it became a real collaboration between the musicians and the dancers. And, and that that's culture is big. Has that yes. culture stayed on? Yes. So you work on both coasts. What's it like, the difference between performing at the Met in New York and performing at the Opera House in San Francisco? Well, um, performing at the Met was, of course, uh, it's such a beautiful theater and the pit is really big. You can fit a huge orchestra in there without too much uh, squishing, without people feeling too uncomfortable. Um, the pit at the, at the opera house isn't quite as large. Um, and, uh, therefore we have a little bit more closeness. Um, I think that also at the ballet pit, you can hear one another in San Francisco a little bit more, um, connected and at the Met, sometimes things that are on the side get a little bit less heard in the middle. I usually sit in the middle. So, um, I would say that that's a difference. And the companies that I've played with at uh, the Met also have been different in feeling. Um, so I think that there's uh, the orchestra there is quite, it's more freelance. It's more people that it's only a, you know, eight week season. Our season is much longer and uh, they actually are losing a few weeks because the Met is going to go into a part of the summer. So ABT is going to be, I think, only five weeks long at the Met and maybe next year or the following season. I'm not too sure. But um, our season is longer, and I think that gives us more of a group dynamic. Mm -hmm. It gives us more camaraderie than a freelance organization. And you've described yourself as a ballet nerd. Can you talk about that? Well, when I first joined the company, I think there's a few of us in the company, but there, we, um, you know, went on tour and we could actually see the stage where, where I was sitting in the elbow section. And uh, so I got to see quite a few of the dancers from the Michael Smulin era and, and Lou Christensen era uh, up close and personal in various, I think we went to about five or six different colleges after going to New York. Uh, and um, the pits weren't very big, so we could see everything that was going on. And that just was amazing to me. I had never, I didn't know anything about it, really. Not really at all, until that experience. And then as time went along, and, you know, it was the early 80s, and that's when ballet was just huge, mm -hmm. just huge. And ABT would come to town, we would get to play for them. And you would see, you know, Makarov and Barishnikov. And it was just like a big rock and roll show every night. I mean, I just, I would still remember it so vividly. And that sort of cemented me into wanting to learn more. And so I've, I've read quite a few books about it. Uh, 
I enjoy going. I go all the time here in New York. I go to City Ballet quite a bit um, whenever I have the time. And um, I just enjoy it. I just find that it's, it's freeing somehow. Favorite ballets? Uh, favorite ballets, let's see, that we've played or other ballets? Let's say what you've played in San Francisco. Let's narrow it to that. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, I really, really enjoyed playing quite a few of the festivals that we've played, where we've played all kinds of different pieces and people have collaborated together. Those are some of my favorite times that the company came together. Like, I think it was in 1995, we did United We Dance. I just remember being so struck at how beautiful the ballet world is. Now, as far as favorite ballets, I can't really pick one out of my head right away because I think I kind of like them all for various reasons. So, sorry about that. I take a pass. Um, the most difficult score that you've ever played for a ballet. Can you talk? You know, tell us which. What is a very difficult score? Um, well, in the past few years, we've done uh, quite a few very hard, challenging ballets. Um, uh, uh, John Adams ballets that come mm -hmm. to mind. The the mathematical configurations in those always take a lot of time to learn, um, and then come together and play them together with the orchestra. And then that's a very difficult composer to, to play night after night. And also then, apart from that, one that's similar is uh, the Sufjan Stevens ballet, Continents for Kings, Continents of Kings, mm -hmm. that Justin Peck did for us. And that score was written in Indian rhythms. So uh, the composer is East Indian. So it was written in like 11.5, 16-2, I mean, there was all kinds, and it would be bar to bar different time signatures. So you almost had to learn it oddly rather than count it visually because it lined up if you just relaxed, but if you were constantly trying to count ahead, so I, we had all had to work on that a lot. And then also we did the Neumeyer Ballet, the Nijinsky, and that was extremely hard uh, for me. There's a big English horn solo in that, and it's uh, an entire page long, and it's at the end of the evening. So um, you have to sort of sit and wait. It's kind of like being a fireman. You have to sit and wait and sit and wait, and then, you know, eventually the time gets closer and closer, and then you're on. So... Um, and you have a whole page to go. So that was wonderful and challenging all at the same time. I just looked forward to doing that every night. And yet, you know, it was slightly terrifying at the same time. <laughs> well, how many, like during the season, how often do you get to see a, a San Francisco ballet ballet. I mean, it, it, you're in the pit. How can you see this? Well, I don't, I'm a woodwind player, so I don't play everything. Mm -hmm. Lots of times there's just piano. Lots of times there's just strings. And I usually stick around and try to see as much of what the company's working on as possible and see performances at, uh, at night after I finish playing the first piece. Often I'll just stay and watch the second and third piece. There's a few of us. You'll see us in the pit. We kind of stand up against the wall so we don't bother anybody, but we can, uh, we can actually see from the pit pretty well if you stand up. 
<laughs> Let's talk about Nutcracker. Okay. How do you get through so many performances in a three-week period? I think there's like 30-something performances. How do you keep well, it fresh? Well, um, that piece of music is one of my favorite pieces of music. However, um, the thing about it is, is that it's not easy. So for each instrument, everybody has their Waterloo moment. Everybody has their challenging moment that you have to get through that day. And because the level of our orchestra is so high, you can't really relax. You can't really slough it off. So I know I have a certain amount of solos. There's, I know the last solo I have, and then I can kind of relax for the rest of the, the show, which is about five or 10 minutes more, maybe. And uh, I find that it's never dull. It never feels, no matter what part you're playing, it's hard. It's a hard piece. And it's only an hour and 40 minutes of music. So you wouldn't think it would be that grueling. And we all know it so well. You know, you can walk around stores in San Francisco or anywhere you're shopping during Christmas time and you hear it all the time. But I always find it's funny because where I'm sitting, I don't hear the first violin sometimes or I don't hear other parts that are going on at the same time I'm playing. So that is always kind of fun to hear. Oh, that's what they're doing there. I had no idea really sometimes. So. Um, San Francisco Ballet had to cancel about 40 performances this season, and the Opera House yeah. uh, staged 3,100 people. So that's a lot of folks who are deeply missing what San Francisco Ballet has to uh, offer in a live performances. You know, people go to the ballet for many reasons, for sense of uh, community, for food for the soul, uh, intellectual stimulation, beauty, wonder, awe, an escape from politics. Um, but Francisco <laughs> Ballet does have a way to fill that void. Uh, we are offering ballets online, and you can watch it on Facebook, YouTube, SF Ballet at Home, and IGTV. Now, this week's offering is Christopher Wielden's Bound 2. I love that ballet. And uh, it's a ballet about our dependence on technology versus the human need for physical connection. So, boy, is this well-timed considering the situation in the world. Marilyn, what's your uh, experience with Bound 2? You've seen this ballet. Um, I watched it every night because I don't plan it. And I just, I have to tell you, ugh, I just wept through most of it. I thought every night I watched it. There were parts that just were so touching. I thought that he showed the intimacy of human connection in a way that when there it was for women, for men, uh, do, the you know, a couple. I mean, the group. Uh, I loved the, the music. I loved the silhouettes and the birds flying by and sort of that idea of movement of nature and all of that being ignored by the light. And the light would be so compelling as it is for all of us. You know, it's hard to especially these days. I mean, I don't think he probably thought that this would be happening in such a profound way for us now, but it is sort of a part of our lives that we just have to accept whether you don't really like, I still have friends that have flip phones. So, you know, that's very rare, but I have two friends and I think that it's hard to accept that we have to take this on, whether we want to communicate like this or not, 
just because of our environment where we're living now. But I thought that his ballet was just so deeply personal. And I don't know, there just was so many moments. Uh, Lonnie Welts, I just loved moments that he had where he was alone and within a group. And uh, there were just moments that I just loved. I, I saw Jennifer Stahl at Whole Foods and I, I just stopped her and went on and on. She probably thought I was crazy, but I just went on and on to her because I, I don't remember ever seeing anything so touching, like this sort of human element of holding one another in a sort of cradling way. He did that a lot in that ballet and I, I found it extremely moving. Thank you. So um, let's get a little background information on you. Why did you choose to study the oboe and uh, English horn? And uh, when did your passion for music start? Well, I grew up in a family um, that listened to music all the time. They didn't listen to classical music very much. And they, my father played swing piano, swing jazz piano, but he was a banker. But every night he played the piano for at least two or three hours. And um, I was always moved by music, always. I did not start playing the oboe seriously until I was 18. It was very late and I wanted to be an artist. And I went to California College of Arts and Crafts uh, for my high school uh, weekends. And then for some reason I got into San Francisco State and they had not a very good art department at the time and I wasn't too moved by them. So I had passed out of my first two years of college and I could start in the music school if I wanted to. And so I did, I auditioned on the oboe. I only knew one piece at the time and I only could play that one piece pretty much. And Dennis Dicato happened to be the person that admitted me, coincidentally, bizarrely. And Dennis was the Castro Ballet's first official conductor yes that's right so I played for him for years but he's the one that uh-huh. actually kind of started me playing the oboe and then I went to Northwestern and I studied with Ray Still there who was principal oboe of Chicago Symphony after only two years at San Francisco State I got into Northwestern and then I got into Juilliard and then I got in this job and then I was in the finals for quite a few orchestras uh, for about three or four years there. Um, I just worked really, really hard and I enjoyed it. It just, it felt right. It felt right performing and, and playing, playing English horn even more so. It felt even more right. How difficult is it to, to get into San Francisco Ballet Orchestra now? I mean, auditions really tough and... Yes. The auditions are national. They're national auditions. We, in fact, we've gotten international applicants uh, for quite a few positions when we've had them open. Um, we have a reputation now that is really strong because we are an orchestra that has auditions behind a screen. Uh, there's no real, um, what I want to say, inviting local people in. Everybody is treated the same way. And so the person that wins that job, generally speaking, will want to stay and as long as they possibly can. And um, I've found that over the years, ever since Cordula Merckx has arrived on the scene, the uh, level has gone very high. The, The string level, the woodwinds are just, that was what was so sad to me about 
stopping at Midsummer was because that was probably one of the best performances of Midsummer Night's Dream I've ever played. And I played it for years with ABT, for years. And um, it just was truly great. So it was heartbreaking to have to leave after only one show. It was, it was kind of heartbreaking for me. Uh, looking is a general question, but looking at um, dancers and professional dancers and musicians, what do they have in common? Well, I think um, one day uh, recently I was, okay, so it's back in, earlier in the season, Teach was walking up the stairs and he Teach just elements. mentioned, yes, we've yeah. talked many times um, because, you know, I, we enter on the men's side and so we end up sort of saying hello to the men more than the women there, they or on the other side of the opera house. And um, he and I have talked over the years many times, and he said he just was so happy when the music started, when live music started to dance to. And I think that that is our commonality, is that music can move you to move. And that is our, we're basically a dance band, really, if you think about it. And we're, our goal is to be with the stage, but I don't have any idea most of the time what they're doing on stage because I faced east, I faced out into the house. And so I just can feel it, but I'm not sure what exactly they're doing, but you can tell uh, when things are not going well because the applause will be either we're, we're off or it's a little delayed or there's a lag in the applause while you're sitting in the pit. Um, it's, it is really just something that you can't really speak of. I don't think it is. It's something almost kinetic, mm -hmm. not, not physical. I understand. Um, now, in addition to ballet orchestras, you've played for symphonies. You've played for San Francisco Symphony, New York Pops, uh, the American Symphony. So you've been on the stage, featured, mm -hmm. and in the pit. Can you talk about the difference between those two experiences? Um, yes, uh, being in the pit, I think, is a, a wee bit uh, less, um, you know, difficult because you, you kind of are in the company of the darkness. The darkness kind of helps you feel like you're a part of the team. Um, being on stage, there's a team feeling too, but it's more individual. It's more of an individual feeling. I think, um, you know, I've played for years on the stage and I sort of prefer playing in the pit a little bit. I mean, of course, when I, I played for New Jersey Symphony for about 24 years, and um, that was really fun because uh, the conductors were fun, and they would let you sort of play the way you wanted to. There wasn't a lot of controlling going on with Hugh Wolf, who was the conductor at the time. Um, but I do feel like you can be kind of individualized in a different way than when you're sitting sort of in the, the comfort of the darkness in the pit. The role of the conductor changes quite a bit. I mean, that tempo is everything, correct? And, and the only the, the ballet orchestra conductor is seeing something and he's relaying to you what's got to happen compared to the, the conductor yes. on a stage. Oh, yes. And that um, there's not a lot of, uh, what do I want to say? There's not a lot of rhythmical chants that one can take when you know that people are relying on you to keep a consistent beat. Um, I think when you have a conductor that has no dancers in front of them, they can maybe move, they don't necessarily anymore, but they can change the tempo quite a bit and make it a little bit less uh, 
rhythmically oriented, but, and there's things because we have played them for so many years, we can tell immediately if the tempo's a wee bit faster than we normally have it or a wee bit slower than we've normally had it. And often I'll turn to my friend Laura and say like, oh, that's a little bit slower than we used to have it. So, you know, it, it becomes a part of your body almost, the timing. The timing is really so important with what we do. Um, with all your experience, you must have some good ballet stories to tell. <laughs> do you have any like, you'd like to share? Well, um, let's see. Years and years ago, this is a long time ago, um, they used to do this really fun thing at Nutcracker. It was the last show of Nutcracker. And Anita was in the company then, and I think Betsy was in the company then. And um, they would do sort of a free improv Nutcracker evening, but they wouldn't tell the public. It was never advertised, which I always thought they should have advertised. And it was just like one joke after the next. Somebody dressed up like Dracula in the party, and people were trying to chase them with a, with a cross and get them out and get them away from the little children. And there are all these really fun, hilarious moments. I think they pulled back the, the curtain at Arabian and there was a dog sitting there instead of, you know, and the dog stayed and it was just so hilarious and people just loved it. And then it just sort of went away. They didn't, I think they thought it was too goofy. It got too goofy, but those were some of my favorite moments. Also, um, seeing uh you know people in the wings after they come off and they look so fabulously fresh and like it was nothing and then just being doubled over in the sidelines you know in the olden days when they would be exhausted or on tour with us and it, that was always just so amazing to see those kinds of kinds of things you would never see from the front of the house right 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 now, how do you personally prepare for a performance? And how often do you have to practice on your own? Oh, I practice every day on my own. I practice for at least, I have to make reads for both instruments. So I usually spend at least two hours a day just checking them, making sure that, you know, when I played that Shostakovich, I had to play that low G natural. My poor neighbors in San Francisco, they probably were going crazy with that. But over and over and over and over and over again to make sure it would come out you know, wow. at the downbeat. So um, it's a, I, at least four hours a day during the season, at least. I would, yeah, minimum. So every day, there's no getting away with it. And, um, you know, injury is a fact of life for dancers, but it, musicians get injured too. It, has that yeah. happened to you? And, and can you tell, talk a little bit about that? I'm very, 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 very fortunate. I have never had any injury. I don't know why. Um, uh, I have a, a lot, lot of it of is repetitive stress. That's right. A lot of colleagues that play the oboe get repetitive stress because they're making reads, you know, like this, and then they're going to play like this. And so you'll see them with contraptions to hold the instrument and do different things because this te the tendons between your elbow and your hand are used just all day long. And um, you, if you're really stressed out, um, that can really affect how your body is functioning. Now, flute players can get it. All of us can get it. String players have it. Um, you know, trombone players can blow their lip out. Trumpet players can blow their lip out, and it doesn't want to form the embouchure anymore. So we have a lot of repetitive stress problems, but 
hopefully you're training every day so that those don't take over the actual practicing, you know, trying to control them. Now the dancers start rehearsing for ballets sometimes in the summer and they perform it in March. How does the orchestra rehearse? Do you rehearse certain pieces months ahead and then come back to it later? No, we usually just rehearse because Nutcracker is usually our first go-to when we come back from the season. We've known that for years. We've done that for years. So we usually have a a tune-up rehearsal. And because we read music, because we can read the notes, we don't have to memorize it. I'm sure if we had to play Nutcracker from memory like the dancers have to do, we would rehearse earlier, much earlier. But, you know, because we can read everything, then it's it's very easy to just practice at home, which I always have to do for Nutcracker because I don't play very much in the fall anymore. And it's kind of like joining a train. It's like already moving from the opera. So opera season, so you just jump on board. And um, we usually then for the season, we have about seven... I think seven different rehearsals, sometimes 12 hours, sometimes 16, 20 hours of rehearsal before the first rehearsal with dancers. And then we have a dress rehearsal and then we have the show. But we have to, we have to practice on our own before any of that rehearsing as a group comes together. So we always have our music way ahead of time and practice it. We, everybody's always going into the library and getting music from Matt. It's a very well-educated group of players and everybody knows their part pretty much right from the first get-go. Well San Francisco Ballet is very lucky to have you folks and uh, we're so very proud of what you do and the great music that you inspire the dancers with and we're almost out of time. I want to thank you Marilyn for sharing your vast knowledge and experience and you are a treasure and to our viewers I'd like to say thanks for watching and bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. For more podcasts and other audience engagement programs, check out sfballet.org or your favorite podcast player.